Welcome to Stolen Harvest Part 2. We could do a dozen episodes about the way our people have been deprived of the bounty of our land and the gifts of the Creator. Colonization has changed and damaged our health, physical and mental, our environment, and our food supply. In this episode, guest host Peter Downey will explore the devastating loss of the bison in the plains, and an ecosystem that has remained in perfect balance for thousands of years before the settlers came. Thanks, Jenny. We know that food is more than nourishment. It's also intimately tied in with identity, community, and even sovereignty. In this episode, We're going to examine what happened to indigenous people across the plains when a primary food source just disappeared, and how Crown and Canadian authorities consciously and deliberately exploited that tragedy to further their goals of development and expansion in the West. Let me say at the outset that this is not easy listening. At Edmonton, Indian agent James Stewart reported on the crisis. I have never seen anything like it since my long residence in the country. It was not only the want of buffalo, but everything else seemed to have deserted the country. Even fish were scarce. The poor people were naked, and the cold was intense, and remained so during the whole winter. Under these circumstances, they behaved well, and no raids were made on anything here. They ate many of their horses, and all the dogs were destroyed for food. The confluence of coercive dominion policies that abetted the rise of disease meant that indigenous people were not only punished after the rebellion, in many cases, they were punished to death. That's University of Regina scholar James Daschuk reading from his best-selling book, Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. This is a story from the mid to late 19th century, and the inseparable forces of politics, nature, and food production in an area roughly reaching from central Alberta and Saskatchewan, from the foothills of the Rockies, all the way down to Texas. And it all begins with that disappearing food source that had made the indigenous people of the plains in the 19th century perhaps the tallest and best-nourished population in the world. Uh, Bison had been literally the staple food for 10,000 years, for millennia, for as long as anyone can remember. And probably, you know, there might have been times when, when uh, you know, the bison had, had shifted or something like that. But um, people managed the resource very successfully. And there were literally millions upon millions of bison here in the West. There were bison in, in uh, New York State before, before uh, European settlement. So uh, I guess it's, you know, like a high-protein, low-fat diet, generation upon generation. And, um, you know, that was the result. What happened to that? I mean, as you say, there were, there were millions of bison. Yep. yep. What happened? Well, uh, you, you know, if you think about the line of, 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 uh, of 
of European settlement sort of slowly making its way and probably progressing like a snowball west. So you've got environmental you know, uh, degradation. The Métis bison hunt was certainly a strain here in Canada. Uh, probably the biggest thing, and maybe like the, you know, the expression, the straw that broke the camel's back, was a very short-lived but highly profitable, totally unsustainable uh, industry called hide hunting. And this is very soon after railroads were built in the United States. People would go west with repeating rifles and shoot as many bison as they could, taking only the skins, taking them back to the railroad where they were sent back for, you know, to be tanned and used as leather in all kinds of industries. That was probably the key stressor that undermined those herds. Uh, another level of violence was, I think it was General Sheridan, but I could be wrong. The general who oversaw the, the destruction of the Confederate farms in, in the Civil War was also the general who oversaw basically a military assault on the bison to quote unquote pacify Native Americans and get them to their reservations in the United States. And I guess the last reason was actually an environmental one. There were a couple of El Ninos in 1877 and 1878, and there was no snow over. Uh, over a winter or two, and that really messed up the herds. So by the 1880s, there were probably less than you know 100 bison, on you know like across the West. So some f- um, uh, far-sighted people, you know, snagged a few of them, kept them on their ranches and stuff like that. And you know the the, the bison we have today are descendants from those those very few numbers. What do we know about the uh, indigenous communities of, of this time and place? There's a, an archaeologist from University of Calgary, Dale Waldy, who wrote an article in World Archaeology about 10 years ago or so. And he talked about the in, almost industrial level of food production that, that prehistoric bison hunters uh, would have undertaken. These, these are pedestrian hunters. It was before horses had arrived. And the level of cooperation, he felt that there could be communities of more than a thousand, more than a couple thousand, all living on that resource and cooperating to harvest that that huge amount of meat that was eaten by themselves, and then it was traded traded with agriculturalists for corn, beans, and squash. Was traded to the north. Um, you know, that's another thing we're just really coming to recognize is how sophisticated uh, the economic system was. You know, you had you had trade. It was a continental level of trade. I found it interesting uh, in the sense of sort of underlying the unfolding tragedy over the next 10 years that the agreements reached between the Crown and First Nations were achieved from positions at that time of mutual strength. Well, I guess the way to think about this is um, from the time of the end of the Seven Years' War, from the time England basically uh, took sovereignty over New France, Quebec, and and most of of North America at the time. Uh, the English realized that Indigenous nations were strong and that they they had played a vital role in the Seven Years' War as military allies. So, in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, there is specific recognition that Indigenous people have title, have ownership of their territory. So, the idea was was that you have uh, a nation-to-nation negotiation, but often what happened in uh, in practical terms was you had some representative of the Dominion government trespassing or breaking the protocol, and then there was then those treaty neg- negotiations took place. 
So it's impossible to discuss treaties without veering into the world of politics, of course. As we begin, it's wise to remember this conclusion by an American Indigenous conference in 1961. A treaty, in the minds of our people, is an eternal word. Events often make it seem expedient to depart from the pledged word. But we are conscious that the first departure creates a logic for the second departure, until there is nothing left of the word. Treaties, promises, 19th century Canada, all inevitably lead to the controversial figure of John A. Macdonald. As John A. Macdonald took power, returned to power in 1878 on the the program of the national policy, you know, he promised to build the railway as quickly as possible. He was he was the prime minister until he died in the early 1890s. But for 10 years after he took power, he actually had two jobs. From 1878 to 1888, he was the superintendent general of Indian affairs. What that means is he was the de facto minister of Indian affairs. So from his perspective, the completion of the railway was contingent on him, I'm using this with air quotes, taking care of Indian affairs. And what he did was, he, once he had the opportunity, he subjugated them, he, he displaced them. And in my book, I was kind of nervous to use this term because it, I don't know if it had ever been used in the Canadian context. He ethnically cleansed southwestern Saskatchewan of Indigenous people. When you use that term in the book, I thought, I mean, that's such a charged expression. But after reading what I read, I thought that's exactly... Yeah, and I mean, this is why we're dealing with, you know, all these crazy statue issues these days, right? People... This is, this is an, an, an unbroken chain of marginalization from the time that MacDonald imposed those policies. One of the, the obstacles to the completion of Treaty 6 was the inclusion of the Famine and Pestilence Clause. Uh, now, the negotiators knew that the white people were coming. They knew that they couldn't stop them. But they also knew that they had to, you know, they had to make accommodation. So this was like uh, a, a leap of faith, if you will. There's an ever-growing interpretation among scholars, among Indigenous people, uh, a recognition that at the time of the treaty negotiations, the discussion of the surrender of land verbally didn't take place. There were discussions of sharing the land, there were discussions of mutual obligation, but nowhere other than in the Queen's printer version of the treaties were the words cede, surrender, and relinquish. From the, from the Dominion government perspective, those are the words they needed in that treaty to open the land for us, for Europeans, for settlers. Indigenous negotiators, especially Chief Beardy, who was one of the main negotiators at Fort Carleton that led to the, the completion of Treaty 6, they realized that the shift from plains bison hunting to agriculture would be a monumental risk. And I mean, you can think about this, think of a pound of bison meat. Think of the caloric nutrition value of a pound of bison meat. And on the other hand, think of a pound of wheat, you know, or a pound of flour. There is a huge difference. There's never been a time from the late 1870s when those policies were, were imposed to the present day when health indicators among Indigenous people were equal to those of the rest of us. Never. The disappearance of the bison also represented a a shift in the power dynamic. Absolutely. So um, actually, it was slightly more than half of the people were forced into signing onto treaty 
after the bison disappeared and after McDonald came to power. And what that was, was that that famine and pestilence clause I, I spoke about a few minutes ago came into stark relief. Like that uh, Chief Beardy was pretty prescient in, in getting that in. Uh, the way McDonald dealt with that clause was he, he told his officials that unless someone is signed on to treaty, they're not our responsibility. So it's not a, it wasn't a humanitarian response. What it was was a political response because once you signed, once you signed treaty in exchange for food, you had to go to where the government told you. And I guess the um, the saddest case, one of the last cases, was a very highly renowned chief out here uh, whose English name is Big Bear, and he he actually went to the United States for sanctuary as all this was going down. You know, we think of the United States as a terrible warlike place. He found, he found comfort in going south of the 49th parallel. Uh, I think it was New Year's Eve of 1882. He and his straggling band, children were probably starving. Like he had done everything he could to, to stay out of treaty because he knew what was gonna happen. On New Year's Eve of 1882, he went to Fort Walsh, which was the, the main Mountie post in the Cypress Hills, and it had really been the center of humanitarian relief during the famine. Like, they were doing what they could. And basically, like, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, that Big Bear probably said, like, I give up. Where do I sign? My people need food. And so his people were given food. He was signed on to treaty, and he was told to start marching north. And he actually ended up uh, at Frog Lake near the uh, Alberta-Saskatchewan, what became the Saskatchewan-Alberta border. Um, as soon as that happened, actually it was in the spring after that, that, he was probably one of the last significant chiefs to hold out. By the spring of 1883, the Mounties, who, like I said, had been doing their best to, to meet the humanitarian crisis, were ordered to tear down that post and to re rebuild it at Maple Creek, not very far, maybe... Uh, maybe about half an hour's drive by car these days, north of the Cypress Hills to protect the railway. So over that couple of years in 1882-83, the role of the Northwest Mountain Police went from advocate of First Nations people to they were now the advocates of the Canadian Pacific Railway at the expense of Indigenous people. Just to be really clear about this, the, the Crown used food as a weapon to force indigenous leaders into treaties in exchange in exchange for rations that's unconscionable um yeah but it was very effective mcdonald wanted to get the railway built in the spring of 1882 in the house of commons mcdonald said and there are five or seven thousand people just trying to eke out an existence in the cypress hill some of the chiefs wanted to have their reserves um, uh, surveyed in the Cypress Hills, where there were alternatives, like alternatives to bison for food. McDonald said all of the Indians, and again, old school terminology, south of the railway project, south of, of you know, like the, the construction project, and Cypress Hills are all south of that, in the territory of Assiniboia will be removed by force if necessary in the House of Commons. They didn't shoot anybody. What they did was the Mounties were given very strict orders not to give anyone food unless they were marching north. And if you look at a map of, of the reserves in Saskatchewan, I'm sure it's very easy to find on, uh, you know, on the internet. Take a look at that, uh, at, at that cluster of reserves around Battleford. It's about 300 kilometers north of 
Maple Creek and the Cypress Hills, many of those communities were forced to march to that area outside of the prime agricultural land with good proximity to the railway because, uh, well, because out of sight, out of mind. You quote a government official as saying um, in 1874, and again, this is using the language of the day. He said to the Indians, extermination of the buffalo means starvation and death. In other words, they were very well aware of the consequences of their policy. This wasn't, oh, we didn't know. The Canadian government absolutely used the destruction of the bison herds by other means to their political advantage. We'll give you food and not enough food if you submit to our will. And then once people were, like I said, once people were displaced into the battlefords, they had to set up agriculture. They had to set up agriculture under the terms set by the, basically by the Canadian government, overseen by McDonald. So First Nations people knew they had to try to do their best to get agriculture going. It was their only option because they were still dependent on rations. Somebody in the Indian department in the 1880s got the idea that agriculture wasn't being successful and it wasn't being successful because people were so malnourished, they probably couldn't work as hard. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's a certain, it's a cycle, but they, they imposed basically the social Darwinistic paradigm on reserves and they took away all the mechanical uh, implements, you know, the threshers and that kind of thing. And basically turned, it was called the peasant farming policy and they gave people things like hand size. So in the, in the correspondence, and these are, you know, like easy to find uh, record group 10 in, in the national archives, you have instances of, of Indian agents asking their boss if, if the Indians can break out the tractor because they can't take the wheat off the land fast enough with their hand sites. It was the practice of agriculture as part of a, 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 a missionary mission, like, you know, Christianity, agriculture, and even medicine were all part of a package of, quote unquote, civilization. You go through in some detail what you call the moral and legal failures of, of the crown in terms of dealing with Indigenous people on the plains. What was the single greatest moral failing of the crown? Had the Dominion of Canada followed through honestly with the pr treaty provisions, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. There are, and again, I don't have any insider information on this, but there are literally hundreds of claims, First Nations claims against the state ongoing as we speak. So if the government had been honest and earnest in the implementation of treaties, we wouldn't be in this mess. Think about it. Like even, you know, as this is going on, this is actually before the residential school system got set up. So even well-meaning Christians were, were on a path that went completely sideways. I was so taken with your research and how you presented it that you write about what you call the singularity of the encounter between the ecosystem of the old world and the new over the last 500 years and you say never has there been a comparable environmental and human transition and I I wondered when I read that did anybody have any sense of that at the time or is that only something that we can appreciate in retrospect Wow, that's a good question. So the, what we're talking about is, is we're talking about something, you know, uh, scholars call the Columbian Exchange, right? So we're, we're, we're giving the credit or blame to Columbus. But 
as the population, the indigenous population of America is dropping like a stone, the crops that were taken from America, say the lowly potato, it took a couple hundred years for the gnarly looking potato to, to really gain a foothold in Europe. But the population of Ireland, the poorest country in Europe, quadrupled over a couple hundred years when it was introduced. So I live in a, in a farming belt. And what I do when I'm talking about the, the Columbian Exchange is I've got, you know, if you're ever flying across the prairies, that checkerboard, that checkerboard view of, of Western Canada, well, that is a completely introduced environment. All of the crops we grow out here, you know, the, the canolas and the wheat and, and everything else, those are all introduced old world crops. You know, I've got a picture in my slideshow with, for my class of, you know, some cowboys, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, on the range with some cattle. That whole tradition is, is uh, quintessential as it is, you know, uh, uh, out here in the West, all of that is introduced. So it's, it's, it's hard for us to, to think about it, but it's like, if you go to the grocery store, even, you know, like in the present, and you see a vegetable or a fruit that you've never seen before, that's the Colombian exchange in action, because that's, that's something being imported from somewhere else in the world that we're able to eat. Let's assume we get a group of Canadian authorities who have all the goodwill in the world, all the, all the best intentions. Do you think that Canada can ever give back to Indigenous people what was so viciously, relentlessly stolen from them? Wow. If you can think back a little prior to COVID, do you remember all the Wet'suwet'en issues? It seems like a million years ago back in February, the golden, golden pre-COVID days, right? We saw the fundamental contradiction of Canada kind of played out in that, right? The, the, the Wet'suwet'en people have not surrendered their land because there, aren't treat, there, aren't, there isn't a treaty tradition in British Columbia. So capitalism, like it's not, it's not necessarily the government, it's capitalism, like that system that we've got to reconcile. So that's one thing. But we also, I think, I think the first step is just realizing what we've done. Okay, this, this sounds harsh, but Canadians have an idea of, of ourselves as a decent society. And we've been a decent society to 95% of us, but we've, we've let that that 5% of Indigenous people go. And so, you know, uh, the policies that were developed, those policies were set up to facilitate our well-being at the expense of the Indigenous people. Like, it was at the expense of Indigenous people. And it really challenges, you know, kind of challenges who, who we are. Just internalizing that, because a lot of people still don't want to hear about that. You know, I think as... That's the first step, is like at least hearing it and internalizing it, and then you go from there. Congratulations on, on all of this. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Jim. Oh, thanks, Peter. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Dr. James Daschuk. He's the author of Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. You know, it was said once that the very ink with which all history is written is merely fluid prejudice. The true story of what happened on the plains of Canada, thanks to scholars like Dr. Daschuk, is finally being revealed. 
James Sinclair is Anishinaabe and the head of the Department of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. In the foreword to a new edition of Jim's book, he writes, Change begins with the narratives we tell ourselves. If we grow our stories, enriching them not only with what we hope to be, but also with who we really are, we will become a better community. We will become a better family. We will not only learn about ourselves, but will also become better prepared for the immense challenge of living peacefully and meaningfully together. And if we work hard enough at this, we might even see reconciliation one day. We will definitely know our secrets, maybe even the truth. I'm Peter Downey. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Peter and James. That was very enlightening, and thank you for telling the truth. Yes, bison, many times referred to by the misnomer buffalo, freely roamed Turtle Island or North America. I was told they even roamed in Alaska. One of the First Nations there has been operating a bison farm for a number of years as an attempt to restore the bison in Alaska. In Canada, a First Nation in Alberta is doing the same thing. The Onondaga Nation in Central New York has been raising bison for over 40 years. Not only was bison a stolen, vital, healthy food supply, a way of life was corrupted. Indigenous people have a unique spiritual relationship with all animals. They are gifts from the Creator that are respected and honored. They are part of the balance of life. An elder told me that a moose gives up his life for you, and usually only bull moose are harvested. When harvested, every part of the animal is used. Hides for clothing, bones for tools, utensils, and weapons. The meat is carefully cut with prayer, and it is shared with the community. It is the same way with harvesting other animals. The caribou, deer, bear, elk, fish, and so forth. It is a constant battle to exercise hunting for subsistence. Even though the United Nations in the Declaration of Indigenous Rights states in Article 29, Indigenous people have the right to the conservation and protection of the environment and the productive capacity of their lands, our territories, and resources. Our territories has, have been open to non-Indigenous hunters, and many are interested only in the antlers as trophies. While living in Alaska, I heard many stories of hunters leaving carcasses to rot, a waste of food that is nutritious, healthy, affordable, and organic. This is often the case for other animals that are taken. When I lived in Alaska in a remote Alaska native village, my diet changed from mainly fast food to moose and salmon. I looked better, felt better. Every once in a while I would crave a Big Mac, but my friend would cook me a moose burger. In 1964, Buffy St. Marie wrote a song called, Now That the Buffalo's Gone. These words live in our land today. Oh, it's all in the past, you can say, but it's still going on here today. 
The governments now want the Navajo land, that of the Inuit and the Cheyenne. The battle continues. Nyawe, Ona. Stolen.